0: It's Talk After Dark, everybody. We're going to talk about the Corpus Hermeticum. And to help me do that, Jonathan Stewart from Montreal, Canada. Hello, Jonathan.
1: Hello, Father Tony.
0: And how are you this fine evening?
1: Well, that'd be the rest of the podcast. I got this toothache. Oh, yeah. Down, and then, I mean, we, we can go into it in
2: the last Okay, shut up minutes. now.
0: We're going to talk about the Corpus <laughs> Hermeticum. And to help us do that, we have our friend Pedro. Hello, Pedro. Welcome back to the show.
2: Hi, Father Tony.
0: So we uh, we talked a little bit about the Corpus Hermeticum in the video version of the show. We did our kind of overview there. So if you haven't watched that yet, pause the podcast, go back over there and watch that. And uh and come right back to us it's about 15 minutes or so of uh of great content about the origins of the corpus hermeticum but so let's talk a little bit about um, kind of the specific ideas that are found in the corpus hermeticum you mentioned uh, ascent in the the discourse in the eighth and ninth earlier but what other kinds of things do they talk about in those various texts
2: well there's uh a lot of uh transforming your life uh as in standing out from the crowd, um, there's the, in the Corpus Hermeticum specifically, uh, there's a lot of uh, there's almost a bit of an anti-cosmic uh, view uh, that the world is fallen, and you know that people are kind of you know heading towards perdition, and that you should stand out from uh from that uh there's actually the metaphor given of the stream of forgetfulness where everyone is sinking into this great flood and you have to hang on and you know find the shore and the you know to, to, to find- uh, finally rediscover god essentially um the rediscovery of god is also very uh important um uh, important concept um salvation and uh, the attainment of gnosis um as well um so that you know uh one of the actually one of the consequences that's given um, for those who uh, do not attain the salvation was a very common idea back in the pagan uh, in the days of pagan philosophy where you would be condemned to uh, reincarnation here on earth perhaps even into lower lowlier bodies such as animals and this is seen as a very um undignified way of, of, you know, continuing your existence in the hereafter. So the ideal was to ascend to the Ogdwad to transcend uh, the seven planets. Uh, so this, the world of necessity into the world of providence. Uh, that's just one, you know, one of the, the, the primary ideas uh, that stands out, but it's one of the, uh, the main ones.
0: Mm. I can see why the Gnostics would have liked them.
2: Yeah, <laughs> indeed.
1: They, they would have been rubbing shoulders of each other. Sometimes it's a thought experiment. Uh, Father Tony and I have talked a lot, both privately on the show, about some of the scholarly opinions and reconstructions and definitions of Gnosticism. But I'm like, if we didn't have the Corpus Hermeticum and we had found the whole thing in Nag Hammadi, we probably just would have called them Gnostic
0: texts. Sure, right.
1: Yeah. Um, and, uh, and there would have been another school of Gnostics that goes along with the Valentinians and the Sethians. Right. Right. Um, so I, I really feel like they're very closely related traditions, and of course, almost literally physically. Right. These are probably people, you know, rubbing shoulders with each yep. other, perhaps even studying together. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, interesting. Um, interesting coincidence. I was just listening to um, uh, Aeon Byte, uh, and, and Miguel interviewed um, Gordon White of Rune Soup. And uh, and Gordon says something about hermeticism versus Gnosticism that uh, both Miguel and I actually disagree with. He, he was saying that the hermetics would ascend uh, in order to come back down and help the rest of the world, uh, you know, to, to also ascend and do all that stuff. While the Gnostics would just ascend and say, "Peace out, you guys are on your own," <laughs> and I, I don't, I don't, te- I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that the Gnostics were coming back and helping out as well in, after their ascent rituals or whatever they had. And I think Miguel's term for it was pretty great: the, the Christian Bodhisattvas, the, right. the, the Gnostics. So I, I, you know, I see a lot more similarities between Gnosticism and hereticism than I do differences. Certainly. Yeah.
1: The um so, and talk about the ascent. Just to clarify for our listeners have not heard before, this is of course a bodily ascent, an ascent that you make while you're alive, yes. right? And then you come back down. That's where the where the Christian bodhisattva part comes in. Is that you ascend? There's risks because you know you have the planets of the archons uh you come back down that knowledge you shared of others so that would be the same thing in hermeticism right pedro we're not necessarily uh-huh. talking about how to get up there when you're dead we're talking yeah about-
2: oh yeah it was uh it in the ogdoad in the eniad uh, that particular text it appears to be a bit of scrying vision that you attain but, but that will give you a uh, like an in- Internal transformation because uh uh hermes i think it's hermes who's actually having the vision and he's describing this ecstatic vision that he can he can't he can't put into words um to and he's there with his disciple uh and uh so this was something that was attained while in the body there's a similar text um which is much more practical uh which can also be classified as hermetic uh which you may have heard of the mithras liturgy mm-hmm. yeah. in the yeah. uh in the magical papyri uh it's a much more elaborate ritual that allows for the ascent uh to behold an aspect of god um in invisible form for revelation and it's called the ritual of immortalization um and while this is not uh specifically described from my understanding uh this ritual would perhaps permit your soul to remain immortal so perhaps your consciousness um if consciousness normally doesn't survive after death um because assuming you know assuming reincarnation is true uh, most people don't remember their previous incarnations so it's Um, presupposes that consciousness does not necessarily survive after death unless you unless you do something about it while here on earth So what I believe the Mithras liturgy is supposed to do aside from its revelatory um, aspects is to keep your consciousness as- attached to the, to your immortal part so that it, it can survive after death
1: Right. That, that leads me to, well, first to a digression, but then, then to an actual question. <laughs> that, this is, We're in the podcast section, so it's, it's digression time. But it, it's actually, and I, and I should have read them for the show, but I, I, I read the Corpus Medicum a long time ago. Um, when I first started getting interested in, in this, this stuff, as I like to call it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and uh, to clarify for our listeners at home, because Pedro, you're, you're an amazing guest and you're very interesting, but I'm very boring, so I don't <laughs> want to turn people off these texts. These are incredibly moving and poetic texts. Uh, and you kind of mentioned that, you know, Herbie has this experience um, you're talking about, he can't even put it into words. And mm-hmm. I remember being very moved and in, in many ways finding them very modern. Uh, and very relatable. Uh, Where sometimes I'm a monastic, love monasticism, but I uh, I find the NHL can be a bit of a a bit of a slog. Hmm. Uh, you know, there's obviously texts in there that are very important to me, but to just sit down and read it on a on a summer's day on a in, in one go, uh, rather difficult. Where the Corpus Hermeticum, um, you know, I find it very, it, it's, uh, it's very readable, very approachable. Um, so that's my digression. Uh, my question is, um, and this is completely off the rant I just gave, the uh, could you talk a little bit about the, the conception of divinity in these texts? And, and I know we are asking you to to talk about these are texts probably from different schools with different opinions, but but what is, what is kind of their perspective on divinity? Is it polytheist? Is it monotheist? Is it pantheist? Like, what is the relationship uh-huh. between human beings and, and the divine?
2: Okay, well, the Hermetica recognized uh, the, pan- the various pantheons, uh, specifically the Greco-Egyptian pantheon. So you know, there's a lot of gods who are uh, protagonists in these texts, such as Isis, uh, Horus, Asclepius, who was the uh, Greek equivalent of uh, the Egyptian Imhotep. Um, there was also Tat, uh, whom scholars say is actually a corruption of the name Thoth. Um, which would make sense because some texts actually speak of like, uh, there's like a father Hermes and a, a son, uh, like who had his, his son as well, who was also his disciple. Um, there's also, um, Osiris in a couple of fragments and, uh, Agathos Daimon, who was this, uh, serpent, uh, God of Alexandria, who, um. Uh, he was actually um, associated with the Demiurge, or the active aspect of God, who so is a very, uh, you know, almost God in a more visible form. But um, God himself, um, in, the, uh, in the Hermetica, um, he, uh, he is a triune God. Um so oh and in passing um I something I forgot to mention there's another very important hermetic text uh, which is um e, uh, the eighth book of Jamblichus on the mysteries uh centers around hermetic theology and Jamblichus uh, the actually uses a source that is no longer extant that has very unique characteristics um so essentially God in the Hermetica is triune, um, not unlike the Christian trinity. Um, he, um, so you have first you have the monad or the unbegotten one, uh, which is the um, inexpressible aspect of God. Uh, if you're familiar with the Kabbalah, this would be um, the Sof uh Or, or the veils of negative existence above Kether. Uh, Mm -hmm. So above number, um, because in actual, actually in uh, late Platonism, the monad, uh, although sometimes we see the monad as one, it's actually even above number. It's kind of like the source of number. Mm -hmm. So this, the unbegotten one in the Hermetica would be the monad or this aspect of God that is completely incomprehensible to human conception, uh, but but that can be approached, uh, as they say in the Hermetica, through silence. Um, so this, you know, having inner silence uh, will uh, predispose you to better uh, perceiving the, uh, you know, the, 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 this ineffable aspect. Afterwards, um, oh, in passing, uh, if in just uh, to put a, a brief, a brief uh, blurb about uh, Sethian Gnosticism um, there's a very similar scheme in Sethian Gnosticism where you have the unknown silent one which is the, mm-hmm. uh, the supreme um, inexpressible aspect um, which is the equivalent in the Hermetica um, now afterwards you have the demiurge uh, which is uh, the uh, self-begotten one uh, which this concept varies according uh to the text that you read but essentially he's the active aspect of god um the it's the means by which the uh the inexpressible god interacts with his creation um so uh he's a more relatable god um and even in the magical papyri when this aspect is uh is um Uh, Is addressed, he's often addressed as Agathos Daimon, uh, so this serpent god that's very uh, he's very um, visible and uh, perceptible Um, and afterwards you have the logos, which is the third aspect which is the begotten one, uh, which is called the son of God in the Poimondris, Corpus Hermeticum 1 and the logos if you were um, to Put a more anthropomorphic uh, aspect. Um, I would say that uh, the the unbegotten God would be perhaps your brain, uh, your body as a whole uh, would be your uh, would be the begotten or the or, or the demiurge, while the logos would be the tools that you use uh, to interact uh, with the world around you. So the logos is kind of what. You know what god sends out to to cause changes or in the universe in the cosmos so like
1: speech imagination these would be
2: the logos exactly and um also if you read uh the first chapter of the uh, uh gospel of john uh side by side with corpus hermeticum you'll see very uh striking resemblances with you know with the uh the logo, the concept of logos. And uh, although I did see uh, at one point a scholar uh, talking about that and saying that there was no connection or influence between them, but they both stemmed from from uh, something else that was common to both of them uh, right. in the philosophical uh, climate of the time.
1: Right. They're drinking from the same well. They're... Mm-hmm. they're they're all yeah. they're all high in the same supply well yeah, you know <laughs> just like when they <laughs> uh yeah and that makes sense right you're in a similar cultural context and you're trying to express very deep metaphysical um ideas so you're going to use some similar language and concepts they don't necessarily have to be borrowing from each other but uh those, those comparisons uh, of course are are quite striking you know between the how the logos is handled in john and between the uh between how, uh, the just as she said, in the Corpus Hermeticum, and, and again, it does, you know, we, we always want to demarcate these things in our modern day, and to think that we're using the similar language and concept as these Egyptian pagans, um, as these Egyptian pagans who are hanging out with Egyptian Jews and putting together this amazing stew. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: and then you find it popping up in places like Gnosticism and, of course, in the canonical Bible. Um uh, it gives it gives me hope. It gives me hope for our modern day. Uh, yes. When I when I see these uh, these these barriers uh, the, that were never actually there, you know, between these different traditions and different faiths. Um, do, 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 do. So did. Did they look at the uh, the Pantheon, at the many gods, uh, in sort of a platonic way, that this is an expression of the monad, or these are aspects of the monad, these are masks of God, or did they really kind of treat these as truly separate d- divine beings?
2: Uh, well, they were created uh, according to the... Um, uh... To the discourses of Isis to Horus or the core of Cosmo these uh, these different gods were created by God himself from this uh, substance so they can actually be said to be um, it, it's a bit nebulous uh, because if God created them are they expressions of God or are they uh, or are they his creations so if you create something um, uh, if you create a painting, uh, is that painting like an extension of you, or is it a separate thing that you gave creation to? So it's, it's, um, they're, uh, you know, they're, uh, they were created by God. Um, but, uh, if the essence, uh, that he used is the same as his, we can say that they are, um, aspects of him, uh, as well, um,
1: well, that, that leads quite nicely to, to the million-dollar question. Um, a lot of the time, sort of in our circles, we talk a lot about the uh, the sacred flame, uh, the divine spark. You know, mm-hmm. all of humanity has, has an aspect of the divine in them. What's So we, we kind of talked about the relation between the gods and God. What's the relationship between human beings and God? Are we... Is it is it similar to some more modern ideas that we are completely kind of separate entities created to do the creator's will, or do we partake of divinity, or are we on the great chain of being, like in, in Neoplatonism, or or where do human beings sort of figure out, like where where do they partake of part of the divine essence? Uh,
2: well, according to uh, uh, if if we combine the conception of uh, both. Um, the core Cosmo or the uh, the Isis to Horus discourses and uh, the Corpus Hermeticum um, we can see that uh, God, God created the uh, humans uh, or you know he created humans as uh, perhaps androgynous or even above gender uh, at the beginning and he assigned them to different parts of the universe uh, for ha- and in the impression I got from uh, from the Cosmo is that uh, they were side by side with uh, the gods, which mm-hmm. leads me to believe that humans were actually gods in the beginning before they were incarnated, um, right. and then um, the, how the fall actually happened, it uh, it varies from one source to, to another. Um, in Corpus Hermeticum one man actually fell in love with, he saw his reflection in nature, in the physical world, fell in love with it, and like, kind of like Narcissus, um, nature embraced him, and you know that's how humankind fell. Whereas in the Core Cosmu, um the... Um, God assigned uh, humans the task of creating life on earth, uh, you know, the various creatures. Um, and But then, after having done this, uh, you know, humans became pr- like proud and emboldened and they became impatient and began dis- disobeying God's uh, tenets or, and I think also uh, the places that he he had assigned them to, uh, they began to overstep their boundaries and God decided to have uh, human bodies created for them on Earth and to cast them uh, there as punishment. Uh, Which is very interesting if you consider um, how evolution happened. Um, I believe this myth is quite plausible uh, because um, let's say uh hypothetically um years ago or around that time when hominids gained uh consciousness you can perhaps say that it was around that time that these um perhaps these physical creatures had a brain that was big enough to accommodate a soul and if we were to take that that myth and perhaps apply it to reality uh that would be around the time when god cast these souls um uh, into these bodies uh, I always thought it was I thought, I thought it was an interesting uh, uh, idea if you know if we were looking at myths as something that can perhaps apply to uh, reality if only partly
1: yes well I think uh, the, uh, I think you're in good company I think both father Tony and mm-hmm. I and probably most of our <laughs> listeners can get behind that uh, the myths can be applied to our reality Though I I am really interested in that stuff as well it's probably a whole episode but kind of looking at that what does it actually mean we're, we're trying to map the myth one to one like that when we're connecting it to evolution and stuff yeah. because, you, know, mm-hmm. you know sometimes I do get these questions because uh, you know people know I'm into this gnostic thing and they'll be like oh you know, is that religious is that Christian what do they think about evolution yeah. so it'd be like um, obviously I can relate the Gnostic myths to a lot that's going on in one's spiritual life and to the state of the world, but sometimes backtracking that and being like, oh, you know, there's an interesting comparison between this myth and what happened in the human story. Uh, Sorry, I'm talking again, and...
0: um, Well, no, on that subject, actually, um, I'm not particularly qualified to to have a strong opinion about it, but I I was thinking about... um, you know what a what a psychology would look like that drew directly from kind of these Gnostic and and Hermetic sources. I mean, I know there are probably people who are working on that, um, and it probably it's probably exactly Jungian, right? <laughs> you know how these these things always go back to Jung in some way or another. Um, but you know, I think that there probably is something. Uh, you know. In, in a, a psychological development kind of thing that you could draw out of these uh, cosmologies and, and these myths and things, and something uh, something someone smarter than me will have to work on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Thank you for agreeing so quickly on that. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, was <laughs> I was
1: I was also saying that I thought I've had similar thoughts, and, yeah. uh, and again, I need someone smarter than me. So, <laughs> um, Can Pedro. We, Pedro Oh,
0: sorry, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to uh, take kind of a left turn at this point. We mentioned the Greek magical papyri in the video uh, version, and I wanted to, um, wanted to get your thoughts on how that relates to uh, hermeticism in general. Where does that kind of fall in the spectrum of um, Greek uh, state religion, uh, hermeticism, you know, esotericism? What, what do you think about that?
2: Well, the Greek magic fire is very important. Uh, They they're primarily, um, uh, I would say, you know, some might disagree, but I would say, theurgic texts, because they uh, most of them call upon different gods uh, for 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 magical purposes, and the pantheon is primarily the one that's shared in common with the Hermetica. Um, Even the uh, a lot of the concepts of of God and the gods are, you know, theologically similar to what you have in the Hermetica, and they're both. I mean, they're both Greco-Egyptian. Um, and furthermore, you actually find uh, like there's names of God in the Ogdoad and the Ennead that you find in the magical papyri, um, and as well as the you know the the seven Greek vowels are universal almost in the magical papyri as. Uh, divine names that are uh that are used throughout um the if you guys are familiar with the prayer uh that's given at the end of the hermetic asclepius uh mm-hmm. the hermetic prayer of thanksgiving mm-hmm. that's actually um part of uh a ma- one of the magical papyri uh it's part of an invocation and it's given at the end and mm-hmm. it was actually included uh in that particular text um, after this invocation to god uh so that's uh, a very important point of commonality uh between them as well um one that's that's quite um interesting um there's a um an invocation a, a very very beautiful invocation uh in the magical papyri which is called the hidden steli um which is um a prayer to god in the universe it's an adoration to god in the universe um where the different aspects of the universe are invoked um according to, uh, to their magical names so it's uh a, a, it starts off uh, hail entire system of the aerial spirit and then you have this magical formula and then it goes on from there uh hail this hail that um and what's Interesting about that is that at one point it mentions, um, Hail to those to whom the greeting is given with blessing, to brothers and sisters, to holy men and holy women. Um, I'm mentioning this because, uh, first off, I, I believe that prayer is uh, Hermetic, uh, and second, uh, there's a lot of controversy in scholarship in um, Uh, a debate around uh, did the Hermetists like were the Hermetic texts evidence of an actual Hermetic community or were they just written by people who wanted to promulgate uh, or to to spread these ideas Um, and I think that that particular uh, invocation uh, gives definite evidence that you had groups you know albeit small back then um, because we know that there were many, many mystery cults, and I believe that there were actually hermetic, uh, small hermetic groups, uh, you know, men and women who would study together. And um, I think the general consensus is he perhaps had a very small handful of people, uh, maybe like a teacher and, you know, three or four students uh, who would expound on these texts. Um, so, you know, go back to the magical papyri. Uh, that's it, 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 that's a very important uh, invocation uh, in in common uh, uh, link with the Hermetica. Um, aside from that, there's um, a text uh, PGM 13 uh, or the Eighth Book of Moses, which is another magical papyrus, um, very focused on theurgy. Or we have a uh, creation myth where God. Uh, laughs seven times and each time he utters uh, different magical names and brings about the uh, uh, the different uh, aspects of the universe and that's another uh, hermetic uh, text I believe that's in in the magical papyri, you also have uh, the the magical name for uh, procreation or generation that's given in that in that text is almost the same as one of the names of God uh, that's given in the uh, the, the Hermetic Ogdoad and the Ennead. Um, mm-hmm. And also, and very interestingly enough, in on the Ogdoad and the Ennead, uh, the um, the, ad, the the God's aspect of mind or noose um, is said to be Hermes. Actually, Hermes at one point says, you know, I am mind. And in that magical papyrus, the principle of mind is called Hermes. And he uh, he appears as a figure who holds a heart uh, in his hand because um, in uh, in antiquity, they believed that the, uh, the mind was present in in the heart. So um, those are just a few little examples uh, that I can think of.
1: Um, can we skip ahead, you know, just by a c- couple centuries, eight hundred <laughs> years? But these, uh, so so we talked about these texts, and um, um, even even back then, in these these first centuries to their creation, you know, some we know some Christians. We're into them because they, they pop up in the Nag Hammadi, which at the end of the day is, is a Christian mm-hmm. collection. Yeah. Uh, you said that there, there's quotes of some of the church fathers. But um, but later on, they, they come to Byzantium. And, and I understand, I, I've heard some, I don't know if this is an over-exaggeration, but the Corpus Hermeticum helps start the Renaissance. Like they have It's like a bomb going off in, in oh, yeah. Europe when these texts are translated and distributed.
2: Um, because uh, essentially, uh, from what I... Uh understood from from uh reading a bit of medieval history which i'm not an expert on but um essentially in the byzantine era uh pagan philosophy um it it started falling out of favor although it was still taught in the schools it still had a certain prestige uh more and more uh Christianity and the Bible uh, became, uh, you know, the uh, the end all. And after the fall of Rome and uh, you know the uh, uh, in the, the in the beginning of the Middle Ages, uh, more and more uh, pagan philosophy kind of was relegated to you know uh, to the margins of society. Uh, such that even uh, if you guys are familiar with um, the Byzantine scholar Michael Psellos mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. was who actually wrote in the uh, I think it was in the 11th century uh, he was very interested in um, in Proclus and Neoplatonism uh, such that um, even though he was a Christian he would, he was accused of being a secret pagan because his interest was viewed as unhealthy so his enemies actually uh, tried to to get him, uh, you know, uh, accused of uh, of that. But um, uh, what happened, I think, is because pagan philosophy had fallen out of favor during the Middle Ages. Um, the Corpus Hermeticum, uh, when it came in, um, when it was, or rather, when it was rediscovered, it. Um, it kind of showed that uh, the church that you know there was this this Hermes who preceded Christ, and they actually viewed him as a contemporary of Moses. So, uh, and he had these ideas that were very similar to Christianity. So you have rebirth, which is another concept that we can perhaps talk about later uh, in uh, Corpus Hermeticum 13. Uh, so being born again um, was a concept uh, in the uh, in. in, in in the corpus Hermeticum, as well as um you know baptism um in corpus Hermeticum. 4 there's the uh, the the whole myth of the uh, the the mixing bowl that god sends to earth uh or the bowl of mind uh where uh you know he's giving a ch- people a chance to baptize themselves into this mixing bowl and to regain uh knowledge of their origin uh so that they can attain to gnosis um so i think all of that contributed to the church kind of seeing this as you know ma- you know maybe maybe those old pagans were you know they were onto something and it triggered a new appreciation for pagan philosophy i believe uh, i believe um and uh, I think it was even uh, Marsilio Ficino, if I'm not, I'm not mistaken, who took the Hermetica and kind of made his own synthesis of, a, you know, more of a Christian uh, her, uh, hermeticism mm-hmm. uh, that he wanted uh, revived. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, and and these texts really kind of they're the bedrock when. Later esotericists and magicians come along, right? Because, um, you know, they're already well circulated and translated. So when people are going back and looking for texts for their practices in the 1600s, and the 1700s, and the occult revival of the 1800s, they've mm-hmm. got the corpus Hermeticum right there, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, there was a translation uh, the first Eng- English translation of the Corpus Hermeticum. Um, it's called the Divine Pomander uh, mm-hmm. in 1650 by John Everard was published um, later republished by uh, william Wynne westcott uh, who was one of the uh, founders of the golden dawn mm-hmm. um and compiled into his uh collectania hermetica and from there it that that had a i think that had a lot of influence in the uh, 19th century occult revival uh, as well um and add that to the fact that uh um, Hermes was, also, was often mentioned in uh, medieval alchemy. In classical alchemy, um, he, he was, uh, and there were several texts uh, attributed to Hermes Trismegistus, which is not entirely uh, a false attribution because even in the Greco Roman era, um, alchemy uh, gained a spiritual dimension. Uh, if you guys are familiar with uh, Zosimus of Panopolis, who was a Hermetic slash Gnostic alchemist. Um, who wrote a very interesting book on the la- letter Omega. Um, he was the first person to fuse um, alchemy with mysticism, and uh, a very central part of that is uh, hermetic uh, and Gnostic concepts.
0: Hmm. Hmm. I've never heard of this guy, but his name is Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's awesomeus. It's awesomeus. Uh, uh, yeah.
2: Yeah. Um seriously the uh on the letter omega it's a magnificent text. Um there's also uh, a vision that he had. Um uh, that's on the uh, if you guys are familiar with the alchemy website. Mm-hmm. Um it's yep. on there. Uh it's uh this really uh really interesting uh vision uh that 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 he has where he's, he's it's an initiatic journey almost. Uh he ascends this ladder of seven steps and there's a whole uh, sacrificial uh, theme going on, and uh, yeah, he was a great thinker. Uh, I wish more of his work had survived. Honestly,
0: yeah, interesting. I'll have to look him up later. Uh,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, what what happens? Uh, what happened after the Renaissance? You know, what what is the legacy
2: of of the Corpus Hermeticum for us today? I th- uh, the, uh, the uh, Corpus Hermeticum fell out of favor in uh, in general society because it did have uh, a great influence on the Renaissance and on the church and uh, on the intellectual scene of the time. Um, later in the 17th century, there was a Protestant... Um, Uh, scholar, Uh, I don't remember his first name, his last name was Kosobon, and he re-examined the Corpus Hermeticum in the Hermetica, and in the original Greek, and came to the conclusion that they were actually, uh, they were not from the time of Moses, but they were from the first centuries AD, after which, in scholarly circles, uh, the Hermetica kind of fell out of favor uh, mm-hmm. but it retained its, uh, its influence in the esoteric circles. Um, now, uh, the relevance for that the Hermetica has for us today. Um, I think, uh, that in, we, you know, we live in a society where, um, things are, you know, everything is a mile a minute. Um, we have, We've become accustomed to very, you know, transient, uh, temporary, transitory things. You know, everything's about, oh, the latest the latest fashion, the latest gadget, um, and we can't, it's almost like we can't focus on anything anymore. Um, the Hermetica, they, there's one Hermetic fragment that uh, defines illusion in reality or Evil and good as the difference between what's permanent or eternal and what's temporary or transient. So, um, let's say, like you know, what's actually real is what's truly permanent. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the gods, um, you know, that that feeling that we get in meditation during our inner silence when we're able to anchor ourselves to that immovable self within us, that is real. Everything else, uh, you know, even our physical bodies, uh, it's—they're not real because there's—they actually give the metaphor of um, a person is not real because uh you know a child does not remain a child an adult does not remain an adult they're only appearances these things are illusions so uh focus on the permanent focus on you know uh the eternal uh you know and uh i think in this world of noise um you know going back to that inner silence uh, through which we can perceive God or the eternal is more important than ever uh, and a lot of people they look to Eastern uh, more Eastern systems um, but um, you know it's I think it's important to popularize these texts um, and these concepts because we do have this in the West as well uh, so yeah
1: yeah 100% um... What was I going to say? Oh, another digression. Yeah, that's um, – uh, uh, I, I completely agree with you. And uh, it's always an important question that sometimes we leave off the show. What does this actually matter for your <laughs> life here and now? And I always find it interesting when – I I think it's built into us that we can have a respect for the past and tradition, but we're always like, they just heard of goats. They don't know what a computer is. They're dumb, right? <laughs> Where, I think that is a subconscious bias in the West. True. So yeah. Yeah, and just to think that, uh, that these texts could be in some ways be even more relevant now than they were in the past. Uh, I think it's a very moving thing, personally. Um, my digression was going back 15 minutes ago, Pedro. I, I did remember when you talked about kind of scholars trying to reconstruct a community that created these texts, and was there a community or communities or was it just teachers? Or there, there, There's stuff in the later um, Islamic sources, that talks about um, in, in the Islamic lands, you had certain sort of privileges if you were people of the book. So there's a bunch of people who were like, yeah, we're people of the book. Uh, it's called the Corpus Hermeticum. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. our, and you have to have a prophet as well. Our yeah. prophet was Hermes. So so we have these later records. And you know, I, I don't know how much of that was BS because. They just wanted to be like, oh, you know, we're, we're people of to the book too, so we have to save legal rights, right? But I do find it very interesting, and I think that's like 8th or 9th century, so it's quite late that we have these records of hermetic communities.
2: That's a very remarkable uh, one, uh, because um, what you're referring to is the community of uh, Haran in Syria, uh, which uh, they, were, uh, they were these pagans uh, who had... They had a lot of philosophers among them, and, uh, and if I if I recall, uh, among them there were a lot of uh, uh, members of the Academy of Athens who had fled after uh, the Emperor Justinian shut down the Academy uh, in uh, 550 A.D. or something like that. So they fled there and they established a community um, where they um, they worshipped some of the local gods, but they had they also had hermetic uh texts uh there and what's re- what's very remarkable is in stark contrast to um uh what we can we see today with funda- fundamentalism and all of that um the um uh, after the islamic conquest they were able to uh practice their religion openly their pagan religion uh including mm-hmm. um uh going uh uh, having like public very public parades um under islamic uh rulers uh they were able to i think that's what you mentioned was because of what you mentioned that they were able to convince uh uh those rulers that they were people of the book so they were allowed uh to to practice their religion i think uh they were they even convinced uh uh, the rulers that Allah and one of their gods were the same so they were kind of left alone uh, ironically enough um, under under uh, Christians there was one Christian emperor I think it was Mauritius uh, he was one of the uh, successors of uh, Justinian um, and uh, if you're familiar with Byzantine emperors they were extremely intolerant and cruel and uh, that that emperor tried uh, right before the um, the Islamic uh, conquest he made an incursion into Haran to try and convert the locals and when uh, he sent the bishop there and when he failed, he actually had several people killed and uh, quite gruesomely actually uh, and which ultimately it actually failed and then the uh, when after the Islamic conquest uh the pagans were, were able to uh, keep their faith for uh until the tenth century I believe right uh-huh. yeah. Quite remarkable, I, I believe. Yeah.
0: yeah. All right. Well, uh, Jonathan, do you have any final thoughts, uh, digressions? <laughs> before <we> wrap <laughs> things up here.
2: Uh, I think I got them all. out.
0: All right, Pedro. Is there anything you wanted to talk about that we didn't ask you?
2: Um. Uh, let me see. I was gonna. Oh yeah. Uh, there was. Um, there's also the concept of uh, rebirth uh, that I want to talk a little bit about. Sure. Um. In. Uh, Corpus Hermeticum 13 we have um the vi- various vices that enslave humanity are defined as uh, 12 uh so and they're associated with the um the 12 signs of the zodiac uh which were seen as uh, the rulers rulers of fate and keeping uh, mankind enslaved is and... sounds familiar yeah yeah rings a bell um and um and the way out of that was to invoke 10 virtues, um, which is a bit paradoxical because how you're going to banish 12 with 10, but if you bring in the whole concept of, of the tetractus of 10 as a bit of a perfect number, um, it becomes very interesting. Um, uh, so it's something to uh, perhaps something to think about. Um, so... Um, also um, something else there's a very interesting text uh, because the Hermetic also included uh, astrology Um, there's a uh, text called the sacred book of Hermes to Asclepius which is a book on the 36 deacons uh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which it's a magical text that gives the names of the deacons um, their figures uh, so description of their figures and how they can be they should be used so we have certain stones and certain um, certain herbs that are to be used as talismans that you wear and they're supposed to heal different parts of your body. They're associated with different parts of your body. And recently in France they actually found a, a, a couple of hermetic tablets with the 36 deacons uh, drawn on them with their Greek names. Uh, the, it was these round tablets in ivory uh, which are uh, quite interesting and um so perhaps you know it, it's if you want to have a uh, perhaps have a look um they're uh, online um i'll have to uh, i could probably send you guys the the site afterwards sure. um but they're you know it's if you want to see what something hermetic uh that's illustrated uh those tablets are quite interesting as you can mm-hmm. see, uh, the 36 deacons, which uh, they were actually considered to be 36 gods, um, and they uh, ruled different uh, afflictions that, uh, you know, that, that plague humankind. So you can call on them to uh, heal you, uh, mm-hmm. heal different par- parts of your body, which, uh, again, relates, uh, also relates, I think, to uh, the, uh, the various archons in uh, the Secret Book of John. Mm-hmm. Uh, which were I believe were also used for healing because they also they, they create different parts of the body so I think those two systems were closely related. The names are similar as well. Sure. So,
0: yeah. Now the, I think generally what people understand to be the difference between Hermeticism and Gnosticism is is the Hermetics take a a fairly positive view of the Fates while the Gnostics uh,
2: are a fairly negative view. Do, do you think this is accurate? Um. Yeah, uh, because the Gnostics, um, in Gnosticism, you have uh, the concept of an evil creator or an evil demiurge. Uh, this is completely absent from uh, uh, from the Hermetic texts. Um, the world is seen as evil um, more as a kind of entropy mm-hmm. that, you know, the further you are from, from God, you know, the more corruption there is. So, you know, the further you are from light, the more darkness there will be. Um and um, so, and there's also a bit of conflicting um, because the, the Hermetica are not a homogeneous uh, uh, corpus, uh, but they have sometimes contradictory ideas. So there's some that say that the whole world is imbued with the essence of God, so the whole world is divine. Um, which was similar to what the Neoplatonists believed, with uh, you know every every stone and every herb having you know essences or being a reflection of higher truths. Whereas there's uh, there's other uh, opinions uh, within the Hermetica that say that the world is pretty much evil or corrupted, and you should try and you know uh, beware of it as much as possible. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Well, that is good timing. Uh, cause we're just about out of time and uh, that's a great place to wrap things up. Uh, so thank you once again, Pedro, for joining us. What a great conversation. And and we look forward to talking to you again sometime.
2: Well, thanks so much. I right. appreciate it.
0: And again, we'll put the, uh, the link to the Hermetic Foundation down in the description. So for those of you who are interested in learning more about this, then you can uh, head on over there and, and send them an email and Find out what it takes to become a member and all that stuff. So uh, so that's great. Uh, Jonathan, any, any final thoughts? I,
1: I think that's it.
0: All right, then. So for those of you listening along at home, we will see you next week. Finished. This has been a production of the Gnostic Wisdom Network. For more information about this and all of GWN's programming, please visit GnosticWisdom.net. The opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of GWN, the Apostolic Joanite Church, or any other organization. This has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International license, and is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. To support our programs and become a patron, please visit patreon.com/gnostic. That's patreo dot com slash g-n-o-s-t-i-c.
2: Bye.